Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, and I'm your host for Treasures of the Texas Collection at Baylor University. Okay, imagine you're a young boy in 1880s Texas. You and your family are returning to the farm after a Saturday in town. You settle in the back of the family's wagon, clutching what you spent a hard-earned six cents for, a 32-page booklet for which you've been waiting a week. As the wagon slowly rocks on the way homeward, you turn the page, which bears the title, Buffalo Bill's Death Trap, or Pawnee Bill and the Comanche Captive, and you start to read. For the defender, whose single shot picks the Comanche so neatly out of the saddle, was a scout and Indian fighter whose name was second only to that of Cody himself. The unseen marksman was Pawnee Bill. Oh, yeah. You're entering again the imaginative world of pulp fiction, a world that Waco Tribune Herald Entertainment Editor Carl Hoover says continues to shape much of today's entertainment. Okay, let's start at the beginning. Carl, where did Pulp Fiction get its name? Well, the pulp, of folk, pulp Fiction refers to wood pulp, and that's what they made the cheapest grade of paper out of. It's on this that the early magazines of adventure stories, westerns, detective tales, and more were printed. The term gradually became synonymous with what was in those magazines, mm -hmm. the direct descendants of highly popular dime novels of the 19th century, stories like Buffalo Bill's Death Trap. <laughs> The American dime novel, and there's a lot of them in the Texas Collection's pulp periodicals collection, mirrored a brand of escapist fiction across the Atlantic. Uh, in England, they were called Penny Dreadfuls. Mm. They were aimed primarily at boys, and they were cheap. They had lots of stories of daring highwaymen, mm -hmm. or sometimes even horror stories. In America, the first major publisher of pulp fiction was a company named Beetle & Company. They started in New York in 1860. Within three years, they had a competitor— uh, former Beatle employee George Monroe. Monroe's dime novels tended to be racier, mm. and the fight for readers became even more spirited after Monroe's brother Norman got into the field. So, so why, why did the dime novels become popular so quick? You had lots of reasons sort of intersecting. You had the advent of free public schools, okay. which meant more young readers. You had the rotary steam printing press, which enabled publishers to print tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of copies. And you had the railroads, um, which expanded across the country, gave you much more reach outside of New York City. You also had an expanding postal system. Those two things together gave you a, a national distribution. Hmm. Um, then at the timing of that 1860s, you also had the Civil War, where you had soldiers with time on their hands in, in camps, um, they got into the habit of reading for entertainment. Those habits continued after the war. Sure, there were some other habits, but reading being <laughs> primary. So exactly what were they reading then? Well, what sold in New York and then in places beyond New York were adventures. And the more exotic, the best. Uh, Texas had plenty that was exotic. Yeah. You had an unsettled frontier. You had hostile Indians. You had invading Mexicans, cattle drives, open plains, railroads, gunfighters, horses, and lone heroes. <laughs> to give a, a little bit of credibility to their Texas stories, publishers like Beetle & Company had authors with semi-military <laughs> titles. So you had Colonel Prentice Ingram, who wrote about Buffalo Bill, Captain Fred Whitaker, 
Major Sam, Sam Hall, who was also known as Buckskin Sam. Sure. And then those who didn't have a military title had nicknames. Roving Joe Badger. <laughs> and then Ed Wheeler, whose who's nom de plume was Deadwood Dick. Were they real? It's hard to say. <laughs> Dime novel publishers soon found that to supply the stories you needed every week to thousands and thousands of readers, you needed an army of writers, or at least an army of pen names. Yeah. Uh, Max Brand, who was extremely prolific, one of the best-known writers of our Western pulps. In fact, he was called King of the Pulps. Max Brand wrote under as many as 80 pen names <laughs> in his career. And in fact, Max Brand was a pen name. <laughs> The author's real name was Frederick Schiller Faust. Doesn't ring off the tongue, does it? No, nor on the page. <laughs> the need for fiction developed a new market as well, uh, the ghost writer, someone who was paid to write the stories, write the novels, but not necessarily under their own name. Okay. Were, so were all these early pulps westerns? They started out that way. But soon as competition got into it, you had new genres that were starting to develop. Uh, readers wanted something a little more than the Westerns. So you start seeing things like uh, science fiction written by people whose pen names were Thomas Edison Jr. or, <laughs> or Frank Reed. Uh, George Monroe, one of the early publishers, he introduced the character Old Sleuth for detective stories. Mm -hmm. And then he tried to copyright the term sleuth so that others couldn't steal his thunder. But what happened was other publishers soon came up with their own detectives, old Cap Collier, old King Brady, and you couldn't copyright the word old. Uh, the growing attention to sports, baseball, led publisher Street and Smith to develop tales of athletes uh, like Yale Murphy, the great shortstop. And it's interesting to read some of these, these early sports novels because this is – early on in the development of the sport. So you don't have decades and decades of sports cliches yeah. or sports uh, shorthand and such like that. Uh, in Yale Murphy, the great shortstop, for instance, the author whose name is Billy Boxer, the referee, well, of course. he runs out of stuff to talk about on the field. So he has to create stories outside the field to show his, his hero in action. Uh, in that particular story, Yale Murphy happens on a street robbery. An old lady's being robbed at knife point. And he wonders aloud at what he sees. Are they all cowards that they will let an old woman be robbed and not try to catch the villain? So he solves the problem by using his superior speed to catch up to the escaping robber, pass him, and then tackle him from the front. In the front. Because okay. tackling from the rear would be uh, cowardice. Un unmanly. I got it. Okay. What's interesting is that even though the Civil War had plenty of stories of actual exploits of bravery and adventure, readers really didn't get into Civil War stories. Hmm. Uh, the Texas Collection has one, one such story called Soldiers and Sailors that's written about prison life in Texas, first-person account, Ooh. and it's from the Union point of view. But if you look at the back cover of that, it uh, talks about a portion of the purchase price will go to a good cause, helping soldiers and their family. Okay. So even though the story doesn't grab you, maybe helping out a, a soldier who needs it will. What you found more common, too, were series like The Liberty Boys of 76, in which American boys who were sort of like their young readers, well, yeah. who mixed in spying on the British with their everyday activities. Of course, 76 was 1776 <laughs> and not... 1876. Got it. My goodness. 
This just sounds like a really fertile time for popular fiction in America. Well, not just here. Uh, 19th century American dime novels provided low-cost entertainment at the same time they were doing uh, a similar thing in England with novelists and short story writers. Those writers had their works printed in magazine serials and short stories, 1880s and 1890s. Uh, you had Robert Louis Stevenson who wrote adventure stories like Treasure Island and Kidnap. French writer Jules Verne laid the groundwork for what became science fiction with his novels 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and From the Earth to the Moon. Arthur Conan Doyle engrossed thousands of readers with stories about his amateur sleuth Sherlock Holmes. Heard of him. Now, that means the Texas collection has a pretty good collection of dime novels. Can you describe some of them for us, Carl? Well, what struck me was just how much there was for readers. Uh, as far as size, they were irregular. Some you had were almost square, nine inches by nine inches. Mm -hmm. Others were closer to eight by 11 inch formats, somewhat what, like you would see in a comic book these days. Uh, the titles frequently had two parts, the better to snag a reader's interest, sort of like you would see with newspaper headlines from that time. Um, typical title might be The Brady's and Brazos Bill or Hot Work on the Texas Border, Frank Merriwell the Lionhearted or Checkmating Felipe Lopez, Buffalo Bill's Death Trap or Pawnee Bill and the Comanche Captive. I know you think with the title that there's more than one story. But most dime novels were a single story with mingled plot lines. In Frank Reed Jr.'s new electric submarine boat, The Explorer, <laughs> you have the intrepid young inventor who travels with heavenly accented Irish and black companions, discovering a Spanish treasure chip. He then escapes an attacking giant and fights off an attacking Eskimo tribe thanks to a timely rescue by another Eskimo tribe led by an English castaway. And all of this in 16 pages. <laughs> mingled plot lines, Carl. I think that's more like mangled plot lines. <laughs> that's a lot of action in 16 pages. Now, ads, pictures? Not at first. Uh, illustrations were frequently limited just to a single black and white engraving, and that was on the cover. Otherwise, text filled the pages. You would have one or two columns of text per page, and then it's nothing but story. No pictures, no graphics. For 12 to 36 pages straight. Okay. Now, some covers are hard to resist. On the front of the 1884 dime novel, Texas Chick, the Southwest Detective, or Tiger Lily, the Vulture <laughs> Queen. I love it. A commanding young woman in a full-length dress, cape, and hat speaks to four men with rifles. The men are aimed at two nervous-looking men who are hanging in tree branches over a flooding <laughs> river. And in the caption has Tiger Lily's message. If they try to climb higher... Shoot them both. <laughs> the covers of the pulp publications that are in the Texas collection show an evolution. Black and white cover engravings start to pick up one or two colors by the late 1800s. After the turn of the century, publisher Street and Smith began to phase out dime novels for thinner pulp magazines with full color covers and multiple illustrations inside. The better to compete with Frank Munsey's magazine Argosy and its collection of not one but several adventure stories. Faced with competition like that, rising costs, dime novel publisher Frank Towsey fired many of his writers, then put new titles on hundreds <laughs> of old stories. And it didn't work. And eventually Towsey sold out. Good. The shift to pulp magazines in the early 20th century also saw less reliance on named characters to build real loyalty. 
So you had fewer stories that would start with Buffalo Bill. Mm -hmm. The emphasis was more on the story. At least until movies and radio dramas produced new characters who needed print versions. Okay. Did any of the heroes from the dime novels and pulp fiction of the 19th century actually survive into the 20th century? Some did, well beyond their actual lives in print. Mm -hmm. Buffalo Bill, the Western explorer and scout, whose fictional adventures far outnumbered his real ones, he continued. Detective Nick Carter, yeah. boy inventor Frank Reed, who preceded Tom Swift by 30 years. Oh my goodness. And the athletic Yale-educated Frank Merrill. They were brave, resourceful, skilled with weapons and horses, and good-looking, too. What? No heroines? Not as lead characters, although female characters frequently appear in the dime novels and often to rescue the male hero <laughs> in the nick of time. Well, yeah. It's interesting to see how relationships and attitudes change over time. In Ned Buntling's 1869 novel, Stella Delonia's Comanche Love, or A Romance of Savage Chivalry, <laughs> It's the woman, Stella, who explains to the man what love is all about and how love differs from gratitude. In her words, gratitude is slow and born only of effect or rather of cause. Love is a tireless steed which will not bear a rein, springing in an instant from nothing into life. Incomprehensible, it is as powerful. It is life's greatest joy, yet, alas, too often its greatest curse. Alas, indeed. Man, that is sheer pulp poetry. <laughs> a decade later, you have a smart, clever female bandit in the tiger, character Tiger Lily we mentioned earlier who tells her gentleman that her Texas band that she heads, he's not in Virginia anymore. She says, divest yourself of old fogey ideas, sir. You are now in Texas, and whether you adopt our customs or not, we shall not adopt yours. I am not a parlor bell to be flattered and fed on politeness. <laughs> well, it doesn't hurt. She's attractive. And it's pretty clear the gender that author Mark Woolton is writing for is in mind. Listen to how he describes her. She was a magnificent creature in every way, with a queenly form and a queenly face. A face as regularly proportioned as an artist's model, with round, well-colored cheeks, a tempting mouth, and great, brilliant, dark eyes. Raven black hair covered her well-poised head in profusion, forming a rippling crown. A scarlet riding jacket fitted so as to show her perfect form, and a black skirt just showed one dainty foot as it rested in the stirrup. So you're typical Texas bandit, in other words. Uh, let's just say video game heroine Laura Croft had predecessors <laughs> at least 100 years earlier. Now, the social conventions of the, early, of the 19th and the early 20th century meant that women and girls in most dime novels got, up, got married or engaged by the story's end. That might explain why we don't see female characters heading Western or adventure series. Boys and young men, the readers, are more likely to buy tales about single heroes than married couples on joint adventures. Hmm. Gender stereotypes continued as movies and radio programs of the 20th centuries began to retell these action stories. In the 1939 big little book, Gene Autry and the Law of the Range, written by Gaylord Dubois, the singing cowboy is saved from machine gun toting, truck driving cattle rustlers. Wait, wait, truck driving cattle rustlers? Yeah. Technology affected even Westerns. Anyway, Jean Autry is saved by a woman, Hope Dallas, who explains her motivation in the book's denouement. 
Before Jean's look of wonder, Hope Dallas blushed again and dropped her dark lashes. I couldn't stay behind when you were headed into such awful danger, Jean Autry, she said huskily. <laughs> I just wanted to be near you all the time. Mm, hope is no tiger lily, Carl. Or Laura Croft. <laughs> Pulp fiction publishers in the 20th century did start developing romance stories as a genre for female readers. And you start to see magazine series such as Ranch Romance and Western Romance. <laughs> now, publishers' discovery of a female market may have been a consequence of national debates on women's suffrage in the early 1900s. It could be women were taking leadership in prohibition and labor movements, or it simply could be a proven audience appeal of romance in films. Sure. Now, you mentioned that pulp magazines started to sell more than stories featuring recognizable characters. How did that eventually play out? That's right. After Argosy, you start to see titles that describe the types of stories inside rather than characters or plot lines. You see things like action stories, fight stories, adventure, police gazette, Mac, black mask, which featured crime stories and hard-boiled detectives, amazing stories, which some believe was a key influence in science fiction, and weird tales, mm. which similarly influenced horror fiction. Then you had hybrid audiences or hybrid genres aiming at an older audience, which cropped up after the 20s. Spicy detective, <laughs> spicy mystery, saucy movie tales, spicy Western stories. Well, substitute sexy for spicy and saucy and you see where they're going. Spicy detective. Love it. Now, Pulp Fiction would face even more competition in the 1920s and 30s, right? Right. Three media would siphon off much of Pulp Fiction's young readership were starting to create their own characters. You had newspaper comics, movies, and radio. As newspapers grew in size and circulation in the late 19th century and their ability to print illustrations improved, many began running comic strips, some of which offered serialized stories of the West or of exotic adventures. Sunday comic sessions contained not only humorous cartoons, but stories told in pictures. New ways to tell stories also followed. Motion pictures grew from short visual novelties to stories told in moving images. As studios began to develop to crank out movies to whet the appetite of a public hungry for stories, directors and writers translated the plots, characters, and cliches yeah. of Pulp Fiction into movie language. By the early 30s, a new storytelling medium was spreading across America, radio. As its technology improved and popularity expanded, its need for programming to fill both nighttime and daytime hours grew as well. Radio really changes things in. It does. Still, pulp fiction, particularly Western fiction, had planted the seeds, inspiring radio programs such as the radio westerns The Lone Ranger, The Cisco Kid, Hopalong Cassidy, and Death Valley Days. The pulp magazine Weird Tales cast its shadow on radio programs like Inner Sanctum and Suspense. And an audience hungry for adventure stories listened to programs such as Terry and the Pirates, Doc Savage, and Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. Radio and the movies helped kill off some forms of pulp, pulp fiction, but it also spawned print versions of their stories. In the late 30s, a new format appeared on the scene, the Big Little Book. Now, these were hardcover books. Mm -hmm. They were about four and a half inches by three and a half inches. They were more durable than pulp magazine, and they could fit in a large pocket. Big Little Books, in the identical Better Little Books, 
were 430 pages thick. My goodness. And they featured the adventures not only of original characters, but film cowboys, Tom Mix, Gene Autry, newspaper detectives like Dick Tracy, and space explorer Buck Rogers. Even though they were thick, 430 pages, they were quick reads. On the left-hand page was the text, up to three or four paragraphs worth. Mm -hmm. On the right-hand page was the picture, black and white line illustrations. My father loved those big little books. I think he still has some. <laughs> you know, it looks like then we've come a long way since a dime novel with plenty of words for readers. We can almost sense the market shifting from lots of text, lots of words, to visuals. Mm -hmm. Comic books become a mass medium in the late 1930s with adventures, westerns, science fiction, horror, and superhero all recounted largely in pictures with dialogue balloons and text panels. Pulp magazine covers also use colored illustration to catch the eye and a customer's money. Yeah. Magazines, particularly ones of western stories, borrowed from film shorthand. Cowboys all wore Stetsons, the good guys wore black, white, and one or more characters had a blazing six-shooter or a rifle in hand. Although there's one memorable cover in the Texas collection. that features a cowboy whipping and attacking grizzly bear with a rattlesnake. <laughs> Whoa. I'd want to buy that issue, that's for sure. Well, you wouldn't need to read the story. It's there. <laughs> Snakes on, the... on a plane. It's there. It's right there. Now, some illustrators made their reputation from their pulp magazine covers. Uh, Nick Egenhofer, who was born in Germany, he illustrated many Western stories. Norm Saunders painted more than 800 covers wow. from magazines like Detective Short Stories, Super Western, and FBI Detective. George Rosen did the covers for The Shadow, which sold at its peak more than 250,000 copies wow. biweekly. Chicago illustrator Margaret Brundage, who was a high school classmate of Walt Disney, became known for her racy covers for Weird Tales, which frequently featured sandly clad women in peril. The sort of stuff Walt Disney would never touch. <laughs> and then you have the illustrator Frank Franzetta, who rekindled interest in Robert Howard's Conan the Barbarian Pulp series with his paintings of muscular warriors and full-figured female warriors who wore little in the way of body armor. Mm. Did the pulps also spawn any famous writers? You had a pretty good number of, of well-known authors. Uh, in Texas, you had J. Frank Doby and Elmer Kelton, who wrote stories for Western magazines. Catherine Ann Porter, she was a ghost writer for magazines after moving to New York City. William Sidney Porter, who is a North Carolinian with a Texas connection, became best known by his pen name, O. Henry. O. Henry. Uh, he polished his talent for short stories, in fact, for writing for newspapers and pulp magazines. He created the Cisco Kid. Oh. Even Scientology creator L. Ron Hubbard wrote Western stories early in his writing career. <laughs> I didn't know that. Some writers had lives as melodramatic as the plots they crafted. O. Henry, for instance, moved to Texas as a young man, and he worked as a ranch hand, a newspaper reporter, a draftsman, and a bank teller. He was accused of embezzlement and fled to Honduras, but came back to be with his dying wife. He was arrested, served three years in a federal pen, then moved to New York after his release, and there he became a prolific short story writer. Wow. Zane Gray was a native Ohioan, started his career as a New York dentist and then decided he preferred to write about the American West. He didn't actually visit the West until he was in his 30s. <laughs> Good imagination. Max Bram, one of the most famous Western pulp writers, wrote up to 20,000 words a day. Good Lord. 
Well, since you got paid by the word for a pulp magazine, he earned a pretty good amount of money from his writing. In fact, he moved to a villa in Italy <laughs> where he continued to write stories about the American West. Brand, incidentally, died in battle in Italy during World War II. Unbelievable. And one of the most famous pulp writers was a Texan, Robert E. Howard, who created Conan the Cimmerarian. That Conan the Barbarian? The same. Howard's father was a doctor and moved his wife and only child across Texas, hoping to attach his practice to an oil boom town and its quick wealth. So you have the Howard family moving to the West Texas town of Cross Plains two years after oil was found in nearby Ranger, 1917. Mm -hmm. The younger Howard, he was 13 at the time, Mark Finn, the author of Blood and Thunder, speculates that the young Howard's time in Cross Plains exposed him not only to the fluid, volatile, and violent population of a boomtown, but one dotted with Mexicans who were fleeing the Civil War across the Rio Grande. All of it rich material for a storyteller. Sure. Howard began writing stories and sending them to magazines in the 20s, but it wasn't until the early 30s that his stories began to draw a national audience. Like Max Brand, he could write and write fast. He produced about 300 short stories in his brief career. Mm -mm. The Texas Collection has several compilations of his collected magazine stories, pieces with titles like Moon of Skulls, Black Hounds of Death, <laughs> Cull, Exile of Atlantis, and Worms of the Earth. Howard also had an expansive imagination, creating worlds not only for Conan the Cimmerarian, but Bran MacMorn, the ancient picked warrior, Puritan evil-fighting adventurer Solomon Kane, sailor and boxer Steve Costigan, and Francis Xavier Gordon, a Texas gunfighter who went to the Orient and reinvented himself in the Muslim world as El Barak. Of course, El Barak. Boy, Howard had a name away with character names, didn't he? Oh, even his villains had memorable names. Ehrlich Khan, <laughs> Bran MacMorn, Tiran, the sons of Ehrlich. The West Texas writer carried on a lengthy correspondent, interestingly, with New England horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, and his adventures buoyed the circulation of the pulp magazine Weird Tales. As unlikely as it seems, Howard made a living in the Great Depression as a short story writer based in Cross Plains, Texas. Mm. And then came a twist ending as abrupt as any found in pulp fiction. His invalid mother, who had suffered from tuberculosis for years, went into a coma in June 1936. Told by a home care nurse that she likely would not come out of it, Howard walked from her bedside, wrote a short poem, went to his convertible parked outside their house, and shot himself. His mother died 30 hours later, and the two were buried in a double funeral at Brownwood, Texas. I've actually been to his graveside. So, in the end, what finally happened to pulp magazines? Well, the combination of television and comic books in the 50s and 60s sapped the vitality and the reader base of many pulp publications. Ones that survived often were the print version of stories broadcast over the airwaves or projected on the silver screen. The growth of paperback books from the 30s to the 60s further eroded the market for pulp magazines by offering low-cost, accessible reading to millions. Pulp magazines, however, live on through their stories and their style, short, direct storytelling, memorable characters and settings, and entertainment above all. Imagine this closing paragraph of the first dime novel about the Western adventurer Deadwood Dick as the last scene of a Western movie, the last scene of a radio program, <laughs> a television show, or a comic book, and you can see how fiction created for a throwaway medium 
has had an enduring impact. Grim and uncommunicative, there roams through the country of gold a youth in black at the head of a bold, lawless gang of road riders who from his unequal daring has won and rightly deserves the name Deadwood Dick, Prince of the Road. Yeah, baby. And with that, we close this episode of Treasures of Texas Collection. Thank you, Carl, for sharing about Pulp Fiction. Thank you. It's been fun. And if you'd like to learn more about Texas and Pulp Fiction, the Texas Collection on the Baylor University campus has one of the largest collections in the country of Texas-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, maps, and more. Go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. Treasures of the Texas Collection has been made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by Community Bank and Trust of Waco. This has been a production of KWBU 103.3 FM, public radio for Central Texas. <laughs>